Good evening, and thank you very much for coming to the lecture. Now, let me start off with the formal side, which is that this is a lecture organized by the LSE European Institute as part of the Perspectives on Europe lecture series. Now, this being a modern institution, I should also mention to you that the Twitter hashtag is hash LSE Simmons. I'll try not to curl my lip and suggest that you should just enjoy the lecture rather than doing anything else, but apparently I should let you get on with it. Um, the event is going to be recorded, and of course it means that it can be accessed on podcast later on. I should also point out that after the lecture, in effect, this is a book launch, and therefore the book can be purchased, and of course the author is here. I'm quite sure he will be... Uh, willing to sign a copy so uh, the books will be available after the lecture in the foyer just out there so let me introduce today's speaker, we have a great pleasure of welcoming today uh, Professor Brendan Sims is Professor of History of International Relations at the University of Cambridge his major books include On Finest Hour, Britain and the Destruction of Bosnia which was shortlisted for the Samuel Johnson Prize, and Three Victories and a Defeat, The Rise and Fall of the First British Empire. Now, his next book, it's always worth knowing what is going to come next, not today's book, I'll mention it, but his book, Next Project, is a strategic biography of Hitler, which is likely to be published by Penguin. Now, in effect, what, we, what today we, are, uh, what we have is a book launch, and the book is Europe, the Struggle for Supremacy, 1453 to the Present. But Professor Simmons is going to be speaking today. His own uh, lecture is The European Problem, the German Question, and Anglo-American Solutions. Thank you. Uh, well, thank, thank you very much uh, for that kind introduction. Um, and Ethan, I'm very grateful also to the LSE for uh, inviting me. Um, I thank you for turning up. Um, can you all hear me? Perfect. I'm, I'm used in Cambridge to speaking to three or four people. And so I'm, <laughs> I'm rather intimidated by what is for me a relatively a very large uh, audience. Um, and what I'm going to do is rather than summarizing my book in toto, um, I'd like to concentrate on three strands out of the book and, and the way in which uh, they intertwine. Um, the first strand is the German question, that is to say the issue of German strength and weakness and their implications for Europe. The second strand is uh, the European problem, that is the way in which uh, the continent has been divided over time and how its effectiveness globally has been less uh, the su than the sum of its parts. The third strand um, consists of the superiority, historically speaking, uh, in my opinion, of the Anglo-American constitutional model. So, as Anita said, the, the title of my remarks is uh, European Problems, the German Question, and Anglo-American Solutions. So there's a clear sequence. The talk will be structured as follows. Um, I'm going to first offer a short summary of the challenges facing Europe today, then I'll provide you with a reminder of the challenges faced by European policies and other policies in the past. 
Then I'll have a look at how these policies address those challenges. And then, finally, how the lessons, if such they are, um, can be applied uh, to the problem of Europe today, or at least to the problem of the Eurozone. So I'm going to stick my neck out a bit, um, both historically and politically, uh, this evening, and I hope we have a good chance to have a good discussion afterwards. So let me begin with a summary of the, cha- of the challenges facing Europe today. Well, obviously the most serious difficulty is the sovereign debt crisis. Um, as we've seen over the past three or four years, uh, the euro, the common currency, has been repeatedly on the verge of collapse. It's true that in the last few months things have gone somewhat quiet, but then they've gone quiet in the past, and uh, repeatedly uh, the problem has re-emerged. And all the uh, experts seem to say that we're very far from out of the woods. We also have the economic crisis, stagnation, recession in my own country, Ireland, depression uh, in places like Greece. Um, So huge economic problems. We have the weakness of Europe in the world economically, which is an issue uh, vis-à-vis the so-called rising powers. You'll all have heard of the BRICS, certainly of uh, the economic uh, strength and ascendancy, as it seems, of China and India. And this is something which is very much perceived as a problem uh, for Europe as much as it is for the United States. We see the United States as a weak, sorry, the Euro- Europe as a weak partner for the United States. So if you take the two major foreign policy challenges of the 1990s, uh, ethnic cleansing in Bosnia um, in the first half of the decade, which I, uh, Anita mentioned it, wrote a book called Unfinest Hour on British Policy uh, in Bosnia, um, and Kosovo in the second half of the decade, in both of those instances, uh, Europe failed to deliver a coherent policy, irrespective of whether or not one thought the policy should be this way or that way, um, uh, in the end, uh, the line was determined by the Americans and the heavy lifting in military terms was done by the Americans. It was less extreme over Kosovo than over Bosnia, but the general pattern holds. So I remain with my judgment, uh, Europe is a weak partner for the United States uh, in the world. We have the issue of the Russian threat, which is perceived very strongly in places like the Baltic states, where individual countries have been subject to cyber attacks. Uh, You've got extreme nervousness in Poland uh, about Russian intentions. Whether or not these are justified is another matter, Uh, but there's a sense that there's no common European view on this, as was manifested, for instance, over the Georgian crisis in 2008, which split essentially Europe uh, down the middle between central and western powers, with Britain being a bit of an outlier, and the eastern powers who are very concerned about Russia. We have the dangers of fragmentation. Now, usually this is um, seen in terms of uh, the dreaded Grexit, the possible uh, departure uh, of the Greeks from the common currency, followed by, as many people suggest, some form of um, follow-on, some kind of uh, contagion. Um, But it could also take the form of central secession. It's perfectly conceivable that at some point uh, the Germans might get fed up with the common currency, although that hasn't happened yet, and electoral signs of that are somewhat receding. But it is certainly uh, within the realms of possibility that you would have a central secession of some sort, 
or possibly a major bond market blowout in France. So the dangers of fragmentation are huge. There's also, and very much connected with this, uh, the question of the lack of democratic legitimacy in Europe. And by that I don't mean that European populations are not consulted. Obviously they are. They vote for their national uh, governments. But these elected leaders are increasingly unequal in the European sphere, uh, not just in relation to their population, as we shall see. Electorates feel and are, I think, increasingly marginalised. There's no overall representative system for Europe that works. And so there is a disconnect, uh, both in reality and perceived, between electorates and what's actually happening in Europe, certainly uh, in the Eurozone. And finally, to conclude my summary of the challenges facing Europe today, we have the German problem. So let me address that in a little bit more detail. Let me start by emphasizing very strongly that the German problem, as I see it, is not a behavioral problem. I'm not for one second suggesting uh, that the Germans are today somehow dominant or rapacious. What I'm talking about is a structural problem of the European system. And that structural problem lies in the fact that Germany is simply too large for reasons that I'll elaborate. Later, it is uh, at about 80 million of population, uh, by far the largest Eurozone state. It's, I think, also territorially the largest. Economically, it's certainly uh, the most powerful. And its influence has been increased, not constrained, by the existence of the common currency. With the result, as we've seen in the last few years, that the German Chancellor, uh, Angela Merkel, actually has an even greater role at the European uh, summits than the large German population uh, would warrant. And this role, whatever the reasons why this role has come to pass, this role is resented by many other Eurozone states and certainly uh, by their publics. So that's the one side of the current German problem. The flip side of that is the question not, or the phenomenon, not of German assertiveness or power, but in fact of its opposite. Ever since the 1990s, Germany has been in the historically unique situation of being surrounded on all sides by friendly states. As I'll explain later on, that's never happened before in history. Um, it's pretty unusual in all constellations, but certainly uh, for Germany. And the result of that, I think, has been to dull the senses, um, certainly of the German population, to a certain extent also of the elite, um, for the broader strategic picture, which didn't need to be elaborated very much in the Cold War because it was obvious there was a Soviet threat. So we've therefore seen over the last few years the phenomenon that Germany doesn't pull its weight in foreign and security policy. I'm speaking, obviously, from a particular standpoint, but that is the general perception. So we see, for instance, uh, in the case of Libya, Germany uh, essentially uh, outside of a consensus uh, involving the United States, Great Britain, France, and indeed uh, NATO as a whole. We saw that in the case of the aborted intervention in Syria, which of course didn't happen, but 
uh, it was clear that the Germans once again would not have been part of that. We see it to a lesser extent also in the question of Russia where uh, the Germans have been uh, much less keen to take a strong stance and reassure uh, the Poles and the Baltic states. So we have, if you like, now a strategic vacuum at the heart of Europe. So we have an extremely influential state in one sense, but also a state which is, uh, for all kinds of good historical reasons, of course, hesitant about the use and articulation of power. Now, those are the problems. And what I want to argue now is that these problems have existed in the past, and we can learn from this. So let me turn now to the German problem historically. And once again, I want to emphasize that historically speaking, the German problem is overwhelmingly structural rather than behavioral. Of course, we're all familiar with the period between 1870 and 1945, the Second Reich and the Third Reich, and certainly the period after 1933, uh, when nobody could doubt that uh, Germany uh, was also a behavioral issue in the European system. But the very first point I want to make here is that over the long historical perspective, um, the behavioral problem recedes. Um, th this was essentially uh, an aberration. Um, but the structural problem is one that goes back many, many hundreds uh, of years. And the reason for this is very similar to the reasons for the current problem. The first is location. Germany, of course, lies exactly at the heart of Europe. And for that reason, has been for hundreds of years at the heart of European geopolitics. Based, not at every moment for all times, but most of the time, the principal concern of the European powers <coughs> has been the German question or some variant uh, on it. Um, and I, in a few minutes, I'll take you through just the 18th century map as an illustration of that contention, but one could just as well do it for the 19th and 20th century uh, as well. But for now, just to note... Germany lies at the center. This means that, uh, for instance, any disagreement between uh, France and Russia uh, would tend to involve Germany simply uh, geographically. Austria and Prussia, obviously, uh, by their very nature, German powers. Uh, Britain, uh, as I'll illustrate in a minute, deeply concerned uh, in the European balance. So that's just a question of location. There's also the question of size. Um, Germany has been historically um, pretty much with next to Russia the largest uh, and most populous state uh, in Europe. The population sizes vary a little bit. There have been moments in the early modern period when France was slightly larger, but basically Germany has been the largest uh, and on many occasions considerably larger. There's also the question of economic strength. We tend to think of this in terms of 19th century industrialization. We tend to think of uh, you know, the German industries in the Ruhr, Silesia, Saxony, and so on. Of course, that's very important. But we need to be clear that the fact and perception of German economic strength is one that goes back hundreds of years, that the areas of the Rhineland, um, southern Germany, have historically been regarded as 
really economic hubs of, of vital European importance. The same is true of military potential. Again, we tend to think of German military capacity uh, in terms of the 19th and 20th century performances. Uh, obviously, one can take a view on, on the um, ends to which they were put, but nobody could doubt that in the 19th and 20th century, uh, German military capacity was very considerable. But what's interesting to note, and the argument I make in the book, is that this sense of Germany's military importance again goes back hundreds of years. Not so much in the sense of uh, German Germany or German states as being an important military actor in and of itself, but rather the Germans as a brave uh, and um, uh, you know, versatile military resource. So Germany was always a great um, source of mercenaries, for instance, in the 16th and 17th century, and it was a commonplace that if you were Spain or the, the Netherlands or, or France, uh, you were fighting against each other, the first thing you tried to do was to secure uh, German uh, mercenaries. So what all this meant over time, we're talking about the broad sweep now from the mid-15th century all the way through to German unification. What this meant is that Germany had immense political and economic potential. And it meant that it was in the direct strategic interest of the individual governments in Europe, either to secure those resources for themselves or, if that wasn't possible, to deny them to rivals. And so this is very much uh, the policy that underlies uh, the strategy of Charles V uh, in the early 16th century. It's certainly what uh, underpins uh, Cardinal Richelieu's uh, interventions against the Habsburgs in the early 17th century, denying the Habsburgs access to the resources of Germany. It's what underlies the Swedish intervention under Gustavus Adolphus, again in the Thirty Years' War, the fear that the Catholic powers will secure the resources of Germany, will take control geographically of Germany, and then pitch across the Baltic and attack Protestant Sweden from the south. It is also, by the way, um, the major concern of British governments, British uh, conceptions of Europe of maintaining the European balance all hinge explicitly on maintaining a balance in Germany, on preventing a hostile power from controlling Germany, preventing a hostile candidate from becoming a uh, Holy Roman Emperor, in other words, German Emperor, uh, and so on. And the same is true uh, of Napoleon. Um, it's well known that when Napoleon marches into uh, um, uh, Russia in 1812, um, there's roughly three times as many Germans as there are Frenchmen in his army. And his military feats, his economic extraction miracles, if that's what they were, if you want to call them that, and these would have been inconceivable without French control of Germany, particularly uh, of the Rhineland. Let me just illustrate this point with a little bit more detail um, by looking at map. I won't inflict more than one map uh, upon you. Um, I think there's some kind of laser pointer here. Is that right? Um, well, no, I think that's the No, point. that's something else. <laughs> we're, we're revealing our technological ignorance. Never mind. We're growing into it. Let's, that's okay. Let, let's just look at this no, that's map. your watch. Um, and I'll, I'll just use this map to illustrate in more concrete terms um, some of the points 
that I've been making. If you look at this uh, thick line here, this thick red line, which goes all around there, those are the borders uh, of the Holy Roman Empire, which is headed up uh, by the uh, emperor, um, elected by, uh, at that point, I think, already the eight electors of Germany. Now, my contention is that that space in the 18th century, but indeed across all centuries, is the crucial space which is contended for or over by the European powers. Why is this so? Well, if you start off with England or Great Britain, as it was already by then, Britain's principal concern are twofold. First of all, to make sure that no hostile power establishes itself in the Low Countries, in present-day Holland and Belgium. <clears throat> and for this reason, you have to make sure that particularly the French don't get into this uh, um, orange uh, ochre area here, which is the uh, Habsburg uh, Netherlands. Um, and that, as you can see, is part of the Holy Roman Empire. And the defense of that territory depends on control of the Holy Roman Empire, uh, preventing another, the French from attacking uh, from uh, the eastern end, because you've got barrier fortresses uh, manned by the Dutch uh, in what is present-day Belgium. So that's the first ambition. The second ambition is the maintenance of an overall European balance of power, because if there's no overall European balance of power, one hostile power will control the continent, and if that hostile power controls the continent, that power will be able to devote all their resources to naval construction, and Britain will not be safe in, um, uh, even in its uh, splendid naval isolation. If you add to that the fact that at this time, if you look in northern Germany, that sort of uh, purple, uh, sorry, that pink blotch, which is the Elector of Hanover, if you add to that the fact that the King of England is also the Elector of Hanover, the German prince, you can see right away that Great Britain, far from being some kind of naval or colonial or maritime or commercial rivalry attached to the continent, is by its very nature deeply implicated uh, in what's happening. Can you still all hear me? Is that better? Okay. My apologies. Um, so that uh, Great Britain is involved through control of Hanover um, uh, in, uh, through the dynastic link between uh, Britain and Hanover, Great Britain is directly involved uh, in the European uh, balance. Uh, if you take France, France's main concern at this time is preventing one power from controlling this Holy Roman Empire, mobilizing all its resources, say like the Habsburgs and Austria might do, and using them uh, against France. The same is true of Russia, which may seem far away on the on the far side uh, of what is still at that point uh, Poland. Nevertheless, the main concern of Russian um, uh, imperial policy throughout the 18th century is to establish its position in Germany. So Peter the Great tries to establish his position in Mecklenburg in northern Germany. Uh, Catherine the Great actually has herself established as a guarantor of the Holy Roman Empire. So that's simply by way of illustration, and you could uh, pursue that theme over many, many, many uh, centuries. But I just thought I would I'd put some, some flesh on, on the skeleton there. Later, after German unification, of course, uh, the immense power that was represented by unifying this territory under one uh, strategic direction 
that immense power um, uh, led to uh, obviously the explosion of German strength and then the behavioural issues uh, which we've uh, spoken about. Okay, now what are the um, solutions, the historical solutions to the German uh, problem? What has been done about this problem in the past? Well, the solution in the early modern period was the establishment of a constitutional order, the order of the Holy Roman Empire, which was perfected in the Westphalian treaties of 1648, which brought to an end um, the Thirty Years' War. And what this established in Central Europe was not a state, but, if you like, a confederal hierarchy. And the purpose of this organization, this solution to the German problem, was to prevent the Germans from fighting among themselves and thereby uh, destabilizing um, the European system. Uh, And to achieve this, it established a religious compromise so that in the Reichstag, in the German imperial parliament, effectively Protestants and Catholics had equal representation, not exactly equal numbers of representatives, but they, they divided on religious grounds on the basis of equality whenever anything of religious importance was being decided, which was basically all the time. So in other words, it was a form of, of, of a compromise system designed to keep the religious peace in Germany, because if you didn't keep the re- religious peace, you would have turmoil there and outside powers would be sucked in. To ensure that this uh, remained in place, uh, France and Sweden were made external guarantors. And over time, the uh, empire developed um, a military constitution. And it was designed, the military constitution was designed to mobilize the military potential of Germany to keep out outside predators, to defend the integrity of Germany, to prevent it from becoming a vacuum and sucking in the ambitions of foreign powers. Now, this solution the solution of the Holy Roman Empire lasted hundreds of years. It was in many ways a very sympathetic solution. The, the old German Reich uh, was a pleasant place. It was culturally very diverse. Um, it was in some ways for its time rather just. It had very um, uh, uh, good, um, if you like, um, certainly um, more advanced legal systems where, for instance, um, peasants could appeal uh, against their lords and, and that kind of thing. So there were, I'm not knocking the old German Empire per se. There were many aspects of it which were very sympathetic. But the point I want to make is that it fails. The old Holy Roman Empire fails. It, it is not able to keep out external predators because by the end of the 18th century, you have the arrival of the French Revolution and of Napoleon, and it is unable to defend uh, the empire against French attacks. And the result of this is that it contributes to the growth of aggressive nationalism uh, in Germany. And yet, the interesting thing is that after 1945, a similar solution is attempted. Because the European integration project was designed to embed Germany in common political and economic structures without setting up a single European state. So the euro was designed to relativize or to take away the power of the Deutschmark. But that solution also failed. So we're actually back to where we started. Um, both, both these solutions, the Holy Roman Empire 
and in many ways the uh, European Union is the successor to the Holy Roman Empire as a solution to the German problem. Both have failed. So the question from history remains, how to organize Europe without either riding roughshod over Germans' rights or putting them in a dominant position, um, which the vast majority of them don't want? So to answer that question in the final third of my lecture, I want to turn away from Central Europe, look west, and go back several hundred years. Because my contention is that similar problems were not only faced by the great Anglo-Saxon powers, the United Kingdom, the United States, but in their cases, these problems were actually overcome. So let me turn to the challenges faced by Great Britain, or by England, as it was then, uh, and subsequently by the Americans. So in the 18th century. So in the early 18th century, England and Scotland were dynastically linked by um, uh, the arrangements of 1603, but they did not have a common state in the proper sense of the world, word. They were facing a common threat from the France of Louis XIV, which uh, was both ideologically in terms of absolutism uh, and strategically in terms of French ambitions, a danger uh, to, British, to English interests. Scotland uh, was an open flank for England, um, classically through the old alliance, the, the connection between Scotland and France. Uh, the, the Scots had attacked England when England had difficulties with France. The Scots were broke uh, ever since the Darien adventure uh, uh, on the other side of the Atlantic. They essentially were in default. So England and Scotland are in crisis uh, in the early uh, 18th century. If we switch now for a moment to the predicament which the 13 American states find themselves in in the late 1780s, immediately after independence, having booted out the British, they too were in a state of crisis. They had a massive war debt which had been run up uh, fighting the uh, war of independence. They were susceptible to severe uh, external threats, um, the threat of the British who were still in, in Canada, the threat of the French who were basically still in the West. Uh, the Spaniards, of course, were in the South and the Caribbean. Even the threat of the Barbary pirates who were attacking uh, American commerce uh, on the high seas. There was the danger of internal disunity, the fear on the side of the uh, American patriots that they would lapse into uh, the Italian model of the 15th century, that they would fall out among themselves, that they would dispute control uh, of the Western uh, lands. So how were these challenges addressed by these two polities? Well, in the Act of Union in 1707, England and Scotland combined. They formed, to use the language of uh, Queen Anne's letter to the Scots, a, a perfect union. They created a joint parliament. They pooled their debt, which was linked to a common uh, political representation. They maintained some Scottish peculiarities in law and religion. And they created then a joint project for empire against France. And this was a highly successful model in constitutional terms. It, it enabled England and Scotland together, to use the cliché, to punch above their weight, not only then, but indeed over the past uh, 200 years. And a very similar solution is found by the Americans in 1787. And what's interesting here, and this is where I see the connection to the German problem, is that when the 
American patriots sit down to discuss the structure they should give their common state in 1787-88, they specifically cite the Holy Roman Empire of Germany as a negative example of how you should not organize your state. Because if you're like the Holy Roman Empire, you will uh, have uh, debt problems, you will be surrounded by foreign enemies, uh, they will basically march across your lands, you're unable to take quick and effective uh, decisions. Instead, they say, we prefer the British solution, particularly the Anglo-Scottish Union model. And so this is why they specifically say we want to essentially imitate uh, what the English and the Scots have done. Not slavishly, of course, because the uh, solution is, is very different in certain respects. You've got a, an elected presidency. You've got a Senate to represent the states. You've got a, a House of Representatives to represent population. It's a more symmetrical union, unlike the Anglo-Scottish one, which is asymmetrical. But in other respects, it's very similar. The pooling of the debt, the creation of a, of a bond, uh, this debt being respon signed responsible for, for a, by a common political representation, all that is the British model. The army and the navy paid for from that debt, again the British model. And it creates a common focus and an identity in the United States, which hadn't previously been there. And the rest you know. The United States becomes the most effective uh, actor on the international scene. So, how can these lessons be applied to the Eurozone today? Well, the first thing we have to do, I think, or the Eurozoners have to do, um, is that they need to cast off the legacy of the Holy Roman Empire. Um, that is to say, uh, the legacy, the part of the European project which places overly much emphasis on procedure, on slow legality, this kind of thing, um, because that's not effective. And it needs to be uh, replaced with some form of Anglo-American constitutional structure. That is to say, with a common elected presidency, and such moves are afoot, a Senate, a House of Representatives, or perhaps a House of Citizens. We will have to pool our debt as a once-off process and then have American-style balanced budgets. There will have to be a single army, of course, a single language of government, which of course would have to be English. Um, and this would have to be affected by a pan-Eurozone constitutional convention elected by popular vote, which puts its proposal to the vote on the same day in every participating state. In other words, a break from the classic European procedure of having lots and lots of referenda, one after each other, and then forcing people like the Irish to vote two or three times. Um, which uh, doesn't seem to me uh, to be very sensible. I think only such a state, such an Anglo-American style state, at least of the Eurozone, um, will enable all Eurozoners to meet common challenges without disenfranchising the German people or any other section of the electorate. And I think I'll, I'll leave it at that. That's taken my 40 minutes. Thank you very much. Um, we've got time for questions, and in fact, I think uh, when um, Professor Sims said I will start with a few controversial points, I thought to myself, surely not, this is a subject that we've all, uh, well, trodden subject. And immediately as he started speaking, I started scribbling things, thinking, yes, 
I'm finding this controversial. I'll start off, but obviously I will hand over to you. We have to finish approximately at 10.2, um, and I think we also can continue um, then to the, actually the book that is out there. So let me start with just one question, then hand over to you. Um, what I was puzzled by was your starting point, which is the assumption that there is such a thing as an expected um, European response to crisis. And I really felt that that was a rather dubious uh, I, I just felt intuitively that anybody who's traveled through Europe surely cannot expect that there is going to be a European policy. We talk about European policy, but historically there isn't such a thing as a European policy. Um, in, in which case, if there are failures, for example, in relation to the Balkans, is it not actually an attempt to square a variety of objectives in each case fairly different, as well as methods fairly different also. Um, and the failure is not in terms of a failure of a consensus, but failure of expectations from outside, that we now as historians or politicians use that phrase that there wasn't a European policy, but mm. that, that surely was unrealistic anyway. Well, I'm making the judgment in terms of the aspirations of protagonists at the time. I mean, it's well known that um, uh, you know, the, the European leaders in 1991 say, this is the hour of Europe, when they're confronted with the uh, beginnings of the Yugoslav crisis, for the very reason that they think this is actually a problem they can solve. Um, and the aspiration towards a common European policy runs all the way through well, the whole project from the start, but certainly um, the various summits and policy declarations of the 1990s, the common foreign and security policy and so on. So it's certainly the case that, that the protagonists feel there ought to be a common policy, and it's the absence of it that they feel so keenly. So in making my judgment, I'm not importing, I think, an anachronism, uh, of which, of course, historians have to be very careful. Um, I'm, I'm judging them actually by their own standards. We will disagree on that one still later on, and most probably I'll enjoy the, a good quarrel. But I think I should hand over to you, because I'm quite sure you have your own ideas. Should we start off with the person in the middle, please? Um, when speaking, would you kindly introduce yourself, if, if you have an affiliation, uh, and also be fairly clear and precise about the question you ask it? Um, Robin Hannah, LSC alumni. Uh, I would just like to ask you about, perhaps uh, in terms of Europe, the uh, the legacy of Frederick the Great, who made, I think, by his own policies, Prussia one of the main powers of Europe. Until his career, it was not, and its capital, Berlin. He didn't seek to unite Germany, Bismarck did. Without, however, the career of Frederick the Great, Bismarck's wouldn't have been possible. And Berlin is now the capital of modern democratic Germany. Uh, and do you think that is because of the legacy of Frederick the Great? Do you think he still has... Um, some influence upon contemporary events? That, that's an interesting question. I, I think he probably, I mean, certainly if, if, you would, if you would ask current day German politicians, they're very aware of, if you like, the ambivalence of Frederick's legacy. On the one hand, they would approve of his cultural activity, um, they would approve of his enlightened attitude to toleration and those kind of things. On the other hand, they're aghast at uh, some of, some of the um, foreign policies invading Silesia uh, in 1740, um, preemptive war 
against the um, Austrians, Russians, and French uh, in 1756, leading to the Seven Years' War. So um, while you're certainly right that, that he was an important milestone um, in the road to united Germany in 1870-71, even, even though that road was very long and twisted, um, I think he wouldn't serve today as a model um, for, for the present time, um, because I think he just brings too much baggage with him. My name is Maya, and I run a cultural political debate group uh, called London European Club. Some of the people sitting here are my members. Um, I've done European studies at the LSC, so I have a huge interest in Europe. And without wanting to give a lecture which would oppose yours at almost every point, especially that Germany is a problem in Europe, I see it as a solution actually, both its economical and political stance on a lot of issues, including interventionism. Uh, my question to you would be, how can you offer a solution based on a model which, if doesn't collapse next year, may collapse in um, the, the next 20 years, that is the Scottish-English um, model, and why would Europe want to apply the American model? It just doesn't make any sense to me. Thanks. Well, I, I think it's premature to say that the Scottish-English model will collapse either next year or um, even in a few decades. And the reason why I say that is that um, the, re the context in which uh, the original Act of Union took place, as I've said, was the context of European threat, uncertainty uh, on the European continent. Um, and I think one of the reasons why the pro-independence um, viewpoint gained such traction prior to uh, the last couple of years in Scotland was this perception that there, there was actually an alternative European path. You know, you had the Celtic Tiger economies, you had the Euro, you had everything integrating, and England seemed somehow just to be sitting on the sidelines and, and complaining. But in fact, um, what we've seen more recently is, of course, uh, regressive, sadly, my own country, Ireland, uh, in severe economic difficulties, no longer a model uh, for, for Scotland, um, we see the deep uncertainty in Europe. You see the Scots saying they would like to be independent but keep the pound. That doesn't seem to me to be a statement of confidence in either one's own independence or in the European project. So the point I'm trying to make is that I think that the very reasons that made for the original union, that is uncertainty in Europe, will also help to keep the union uh, next year and in the future decades. But I, I, don't, have a crystal, I don't have a crystal ball. Uh, I can't prove it. But that would be, that would be my answer. Well, it, it would depend on the context. Um, again, I think it's, the question is not so much whether England stroke Britain leaves the EU but whether the EU or the Eurozone, in the course of undertaking the changes which are necessary for its own survival, creates something quite different, of which Britain, because it wishes to maintain its sovereignty, can no longer be a part. See? So I think they would both, the EU would become something quite different. 
So you'd, you'd be in a new situation. And there, I think, there would have to be a debate whether the Scots, it would be up to the Scots. Um, Scots would have to decide whether they thought that better served their interests than staying in the UK. My sense is they would, need, they would need to be pretty persuaded before they took such a massive step. I mean, it would be an act otherwise of unbelievable constitutional and historical vandalism. Hi, uh, my name is Alok Basu. I'm an ex-alumnus from LSE. Um, my um, background is actually economics, not history. And I found your lecture enormously interesting. Thank you. Um, the thing that sort of leapt out at me and, and puzzled me somewhat is that you're adopting um, a model and arguing that that's what Europe should, um, should utilise in order to, if you like, create a United States of Europe. Surely what gravitates against that um, is the fact that you've got individual countries in Europe which have adopted exactly that kind of model to the extent that the national identity is so strong that it makes it very difficult to create a United States of Europe in a way that might not have been the case for the United States of America. Mm. Um, and I was wondering if you could perhaps give, because um, I'm not a historian, perhaps a bit more of a historical perspective on um, how much of an identity there was shared amongst the American states or not shared mm -hmm. that might be relevant in this context going forward. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Well, that's an extremely good question, and I'll, I'll provide two answers, the historical and then coming to your um, challenge, as it were, to, to my vision, which is obviously based on, on, on the history. Um, uh, well, the, the colonial Americans prior to the War of Independence regarded themselves as British imperialists, and one of the major uh, complaints they have about uh, London Westminster um, it actually begins with disagreements about Western expansion. And they, you know, the, the failure of Westminster to, to cash in on the, the victory of 18, uh, 1763, the, the Seven Years' War, um, mollycoddling, as they saw it, the, you know, Native Americans, uh, not confronting the um, Spaniards and the French, uh, creating a vacuum into which foreign powers might, might push. Um, and uh, that, I think, is a very important part of uh, the, the, the breakdown relations uh, with, uh, with London. Um, and so they actually have to create for themselves very quickly a new identity. Um, and it simply becomes a territorial identity, having fought a common war together and so on. And of course, over time, there's been a huge demographic shift through immigration uh, and so on. So um, it's an identity which to a considerable extent follows the political creation in 1787 as much as precedes it. And this is one of the things that gives me hope for the European project. Now, the second part, or the first part of your question, the second part I address in, in, this, in, in, in my answer now, and the second part is whether the existing European identities are not so strong that they would resist such a vision as I've set out. And here I think that that is would have been true maybe 20 years ago. But my sense that over very broad sways of the Eurozone, I exempt this country, and to a certain extent, possibly France, that's a special case, um, but um, over very large sways of the Eurozone, um, populations have actually already taken their leave from straightforward traditional national politics. 
Um, one of the reasons why they wanted to get into Europe in the first place is because they had such a low opinion of the clientelist, traditional, conservative, or not conservative, they could be left-wing, but in any case, uh, corrupt um, uh, uh, elites. And they were looking to Europe to provide them uh, with something better. And what is very striking, if you look, say, the situation in Ireland or Greece, um, the, the numbers of those who wish to return to their national currencies, those who wish to return to straightforward national sovereignty, is very small. And the reason for that is partly because they know that, in fact, they wouldn't be sovereign because they're too small anyway to survive in this, you know, um, rather brutal outside world. Um, and secondly, because they think they could get a better deal in Europe. And so they're in this rather strange limbo at the moment that they've, they've said goodbye in many ways to their national politics. But they haven't yet reached, at the European level, those sunny uplands. And so I think they would, um, these populations would be sympathetic to a solution which gave them, uh, which accepts that sovereignty has already left their shores, but gave them through democratic participation at the centre, uh, participatory buy-in, which they otherwise wouldn't have. That, I think, is the argument. And just to illustrate that point, I mean, I wrote a, point, I wrote a, a piece um, suggesting this very solution in Ireland about a year ago, and there was quite a big debate at the time, not so much because I'd written it, but because I, it was co-written by a gentleman called Declan Ganley, um, who has a lot of very high media profile in Ireland. And what was striking, there was a, um, a leading article in the Irish Times, there was TV and radio debates, and almost all the commentators thought that some such Eurozone-style political union was what was required, and they accepted that in many respects the Irish state had failed. And of course it, it had. It had called in. It had basically given the guarantee in 2008, handed over its destiny uh, to the European Central Bank, and essentially the sovereignty was already gone. So through participation at the centre, you can get back some of the democratic um, rights you've lost. That would be my argument. And I think the populations would go for it. Uh, hello, uh, my name is Adam Goldsmith. I'm a former energy trader and a master's candidate at uh, Columbia in Economic Policy. Um, I guess throughout the lecture, it seems like the question of more or less Europe is the answer. It seems like you're in favor of more Europe. Um, I was wondering how you pr propose, well, I, I agree with you that the cultural integration, people want that. It seems like over and over again, people want the euro, they want to be part of the bigger thing. How do you propose getting over the problem of, in Germany, getting the German people to want to um, amalgamate their debt with the rest of Europe? Um, there are, as you know, there's German parties that do support that, but they're not in the majority. How would you propose overcoming that issue? Well, that, that's the immediate issue. Um, and well, I think the first thing to be said is that the Germans already effectively have pooled the debt um, in the sense that um, you know, they're already underwriting massive bailout programs which are you know, addressing this issue. Um, quite a lot of the debt is not going to be paid back under any circumstances. So <laughs> it may be regarded as effectively uh, pooled. Um, added to that the fact that if you aggregate all the Eurozone debt, you'd actually end up with... Um, I think considerably lower debt levels than the United States or, or this country. Um, now, 
Where I think the German anxiety lies, and it's a very reasonable anxiety, is the f- not so much the historic debts, because you could um, consolidate the historic debts in one uh, one-sort process and, and create a eurobond. The question is, would they go and do the same again? And the answer is, they certainly would, <laughs> if they still had the sovereign instruments or quasi-sovereign instruments to do so. So the consolidation of debt would have to go hand in hand with some form of, of, act, of, of actually enforced debt ceiling um, and, and indeed of the creation of effective union tax inspectorates and extraction mechanisms which actually enforced um, you know, uh, these rules in areas which were no longer um, which were not actually enforcing them. So you didn't have a situation where you had you know, poor people or moderately, moderate income people in, um, in Germany paying into schemes which bail out rich people in, in Greece, which is currently more or less the case. Uh, good evening. Thank you for the lecture. Uh, if you see that the European Union is democratic as well as uh, not, it's less corrupt than local governments, I don't know where you get it from, that's what you mentioned some time ago. Uh, great British historian Paul Johnson uh, did mention one, one, he started one of his books uh, saying that 20th century started in 1918, shortly after the uh, First World War finished. finished. Don't you, won't you agree with me that uh, 21st century has not really started yet and it will start as soon as the Euro project, Eurozone, Euro area will collapse because, the, uh, because Germany is really pushing too hard and uh, that's it really thank you thank you well to take your first your second question first um, which I thought was very interesting um, yes I mean I think um, it will either start then or it will start when the eurozone uh, finally gets its act together and creates um, a single state Um, and I completely agree with you um, either of those outcomes will put us in a a, a totally new ball game and, and a new era as regards um, the European Union and, and corruption, I'm not a, a spokesman for Brussels, um, and I wouldn't want to defend um, everything that, that goes on there. Um, but I think that generally speaking, obviously there's a difference between countries. I mean, I think that, for example, in this country there's very high levels of compliance and, and public honesty and that kind of thing, not least because there's a press that enforces that and a culture that, that's, um, uh, that favours that. I think, though... There are many other areas in Europe where actually um, the, the, the Commission and Europeanisation and so on has, has actually improved um, public st- standards in, in, in public life. Um, so uh, that's really what I, I was getting at. And more to the point, insofar as uh, Brussels is corrupt and incompetent, it is so um, not least because there isn't at the moment an effective, uh, yes, an effective um, democratic uh, uh, method of accountability. So with the kind of Eurozone political union that I'm proposing, um, of course there would be that oversight and my hope would be uh, that uh, then the corruption issues would then also recede. The two successful unions you mentioned had English as the pretty obvious winner linguistically um, in Europe 
uh, I tend to agree with you that it's the likely winner as well, but the process would not be without friction, to put it mildly. And even if that solution was adopted at a political level, you still don't get the labor mobility which has seen Scots such as myself coming south of the border to get jobs for many, many generations uh, and has seen Americans moving around with great freedom. So is it reasonable to suggest that applying the same solution would work as well in Europe? Well, I, I was seeing English as the language of government and obviously command in the army and, and so on. Uh, clearly, there would be the individual languages as they exist um, in you know, commerce and local government and, and so on. Um, I, I mean, I, I would have two responses. We're not really disagreeing. Uh, one is that English has already won. I mean, when European elites sit down to discuss um, Europe and they don't have a whole battery of, of um, uh, translators with them, they speak in English, by and large. Um, that is, is the lingua franca. And secondly, um, the German president, Mr. Gauck, uh, a couple of months ago, actually broached the issue and said, look, we need a common language of debate, we need a, a public sphere, and it's going to be English. Um, get over it. Um, so while I agree that it will not be without pain, um, it's, it's the obvious solution, and to a considerable extent, it's already happening. Uh, my name's Nigel Brahams, a history graduate from Bristol University a long time ago, and I'm here with a few members of my little historical and political discussion group as well. Um, it struck me that you hadn't mentioned or barely mentioned one of the largest polities on your map there, which was the Ottoman Empire, and I was wondering, um, really up from 1453 through to about the period you've got in question, wasn't that uh, possibly the most influential body in um, the history of Europe? And secondly, sort of slightly different question based on that. Um, were Turkey to join the European Union, how would that change things? Okay, yeah, in the book actually the first, the first two chapters have got quite a, quite a strong um, Ottoman element in them. Um, and as you quite rightly say, ever since the fall of Constantinople in 1453, uh, the thrust of um, the Ottomans into to Central Europe is a major organizing principle um, in, in European politics, and particularly in the, um, uh, in the politics of, of Central Europe and Holy Roman Empire. Um, what's remarkable here also is the extent to which the Ottomans themselves are preoccupied with Germany um, and the sense in which, for example, uh, Sultan Suleiman the Magnificent um, has himself dressed up by his iconographers as a sort of a challenger, as a sort of an alternative Holy Roman Emperor. And the way in which also German Protestant princes in the early 16th century very often said we'd actually quite like to be under the protection um, of the Ottomans because they would be nicer to us than, um, uh, than the Catholic Habsburgs. So yes, you're, you're absolutely right. Uh, the Ottoman uh, dimension is, is, is critical um, until the late 17th century um, when, of course, uh, you've got the defeat um, at the gates of Vienna in 1683. And after that, it's a long uh, Ottoman uh, decline. So when I came to my detailed account for the 18th century, the Ottomans already receding, so that was the reason why I didn't mention them in my gallop, which I think actually most people didn't hear anyway, because I, <laughs> I didn't have the, the microphone. So you were spared that. On the question of Turkey, um, my view is that um, the essence of, of, of a 
such a future union should be political and voluntary. So my view is that any state or people that satisfies the criteria in terms of you know, human rights, um, freedom of the press, willingness to, um, to uh, um, work through these common political structures, um, I would welcome them. Now, uh, for Turkey, that would mean you know, a completely open public sphere on the Armenian issue, for instance. Whether or not one thinks it was a genocide, is, that's not my point. Um, so there, there, there's a great many things that Turkey would have to do and accept before it would be able to join, but that it would, should join if it were able to, to align itself in that way. Um, of that I have no doubt, and I would like to think that the European Union would in that sense be like this, or this new Eurozone Union, would be like the 19th century United States, which simply spread um, and by accession um, and, and votes um, uh, became larger and larger. I wouldn't see any you know, national, ethnic or cultural boundaries unless they also had political implications. Janet Hartley, Department of International History, LSE. I'd like to follow on from that question, really, because I think the Ottoman Empire is quite interesting because it's a problem for Europe when it's strong. It's even more of a problem when it's weak. And I, I wonder about your Germany's problem country. Most European countries have had their moments. Uh, France has been a problem. Spain has been a problem. Russia has been a problem. Balta has been a problem. Balkans have been a problem. And, and I wonder from that whether you could extend your German argument, is it just as much a European problem, in, in your view, when it's weak as when it's strong? Because it was weak after 30 years' war, it created a problem, it's weak in the Napoleonic period, it created a problem, it was weak when it had been shattered by war, it created a problem. The way you were presenting it was a problem of a country that's too big, too strong, too populous, too economically successful. Uh, but I, I'd like to see if you would extend that to Germany being a problem when it's weak. No, I, I, completely, uh, I completely agree with you, and I, I hope I did say in the course of my remarks that this was a structural question which applied both in times of weakness and in times of strength. And indeed, um, the first few chapters, the first 300 years of the book, deal with the phenomenon of German weakness, um, of, the, of the Reich as, as, as a weak uh, way of binding um, uh, Germany together. Um, and indeed, my point was that this was a structural problem um, uh, which was true whether Germany w was uh, strong or weak and that the, the times when Germany was assertive was more of an aberration. I, I, I thought I said I hope I said that. I, I certainly should have said it. Um, and it's in, it's in the book. Um, as to your question, which I think is a very good one, um, could one not do the same exercise for other European states? And I know you're um, particularly familiar with, with Russia um, and I've, obviously I've read your work uh, uh, there um, and it's certainly true that the question of um, uh, you know it's often said Russia is I think it was Dominic Levin said of Russia is never as strong or as weak as it, as it looks and uh, Russian strength and Russian weakness um, can both be issues for the for the European system nevertheless I don't think one could write a general history of Europe using as its principal focus Russia and the Russian question in the way that perhaps misguidedly 
I have attempted to do so for Germany and the German question. For, for the simple reasons I've given of geographic location, of the way in which it intersects with, um, with the interests of all the powers, and also the fact that Russia really only erupts onto the, uh, as you know, onto the international scene uh, relatively late, at a relatively late point in you know, the early 18th century. So I don't think one could actually write European history from the vantage point of another state as well as you can do it from Germany. That's my contention anyway. If I might just add my own question here. I was throughout the lecture tempted to ask, is Germany really that strong? I mean, we tend to view German history through the prism of wars, but they were lost wars. Um, it's somehow we, we create an image of Germany united, uh, focused, and most of all united on its priorities in Europe. But again, it just doesn't seem right to me. In other words, this is shorthand which sometimes allows us to create an image, and you did spend some time discussing the image of Germany rather than the reality. I think the reality would the study of specific internal policies would reveal that there are internal divisions that are as visible in Germany as they are in any other country. Yes, I, I, I don't disagree with that. And indeed, um, the thrust of the lecture was that uh, German, German strength and German weakness are both the organizing principles. But this huge latent strength is then the target uh, or the object of, of extreme interest by the other powers. So that even when Germany is not united, uh, as it isn't for most of the period, um, it is then the main focus. So it's only united as a major power factor between 1870 and 1945, and then, of course, after 1990. But in all those intervening periods, the great powers are looking to control Germany in their own interests. So my argument doesn't depend on the... the, the, the uh, Object, the subjective power of Germany at any one time, but rather its objective potential and the way in which these other powers try to control it. Hello, my name is Ali Tunay. Uh, I'm a master's candidate in history in Goldsmiths College. Uh, I'm a Turkish citizen. Uh, my question is maybe it's a, it's a comment rather than a question. Uh, I waited two weeks in order to get my visa and I lost like three weeks of my studies because of uh, home offices uh, I would say ethnocentric perception towards I wouldn't say maybe only Turkish students but probably towards Muslim students so okay now we are offering a structural solution to the problems of European Union but in the meantime, I guess there are many things that European Union can solve in daily basis, starting from, I don't know, this some sort of a, uh, ethnocentrist perception. Because, okay, as a Turkish citizen, I do feel that we have uh, many things to do in terms of human rights. Forget about Armenian genocide. I mean, there are many things that we should do for, for improving the standard of living in Turkey. But also, I think, in that sense, European Union does not really help to its one of uh, its major candidate countries. 
Yeah, I, mean, I, I take on board your, your comment. I don't, I don't really, as a historian, have any, or even as a contemporary, come to have anything to, to add to that, but, but thank you. Yeah. My name is Adam. I uh, work for a software company, but I've done some uh, studies in um, US, UK history as well. Um, my question would be around, uh, I mean, first of all, I'm very happy for your idea of uh, having a common European Union. I didn't really hear it from any people living in the UK or, or Ireland, so it's kind of like good to hear that. I mean, Euroscapism is just on the kind of here, here in, uh, in this area. And uh, my question would be that how would you actually imagine like a common European government where like let's say there are like 500 million voters let's say 1000 representatives or something and how would they make like decisions on taxation or common agriculture policy or whatever how, how would it work out like you would have 20 let's say 30 countries by that time or something like that how would that work how is it possible to do thank you well the Thank you. I mean, the, those countries would, would cease to exist as sovereign policies. So, I mean, there would, there would, anything that should be done by the Union, which would be you know, major infrastructural projects, defense, all those kind of things, um, you would have a, a Union budget and you know, a House of Citizens or a House of Representatives, which was elected by uh, equal votes across the Union, would be responsible for that. So that's how it would be done. Um, and there would, as I said, there would be no longer any sovereign states. The sovereign would be uh, the union. We've got the lady at the front. Mm -hmm. and then Thank you. Hello, uh, my name is Liz. I was just going to ask, um, so if we were to establish a, um, a structure that's based on an Anglo-style system, um, what role would the UK play in this new structure and also wouldn't it forcibly lead to a loss of the sort of cultural diversity or compromise of cultural diversity in Europe which is perhaps an asset okay um, well there's a historical and a political answer to your question and the, the argument in my book is that um, uh, Britain Britain does have a distinctive history in Europe. Um, the European Union was designed to fix a problem, something that was never broken in Britain. That, I'm afraid it is a simple historical fact. Um, I can, I'm not English, I can say that. <laughs> um, and so you don't have the phenomenon of defeat and occupation from the Second World War. You don't have at the moment, obviously, the problem of, of common currency. Um, you have in this country um, a polity which has developed for hundreds of years. It's highly robust and effective parliamentary representation, a common debt, pretty effective army and so on. Um, and so uh, it, it is different from virtually any other European state, except perhaps the Swiss. Um, but all the other... So England is... England stroke Great Britain... Uh, but even the English rump, is large enough to survive on its own. My, my argument is that Germany is too large to be 
allowed, if you like, to survive on its own. Um, and all the other countries are too small. So Britain is simply exceptional for historical reasons within Europe. I think that has very strong implications for the future path. Speaking simply personally, I would be delighted if Great Britain joined the Eurozone state that I've outlined. I don't think there's the slightest chance of that happening, at least the first time round. And therefore, um, one is in a situation where one doesn't want the best to be the enemy of the good. Um, because my sense is, and certainly if you, if you listen to what uh, political leadership in this country is saying, uh, you know, right down you know, from the PM, uh, Mr. Osborne, Chancellor, and so on, they're all saying, we want the Eurozone integration to work because it's in Britain's national interest that Europe should not be a mess. But at the same time, they don't want to join this union. And therefore, the great danger at the moment is that there will be reform attempts in the Union trying to make it more palatable to the British and therefore weakening it and therefore not doing the very things that need to be done to make the Eurozone work. So to put it in a different way, um, the Eurozone, has, as I've said, has to take on the characteristics of Anglo-American constitutional structure. So, punchline, uh, we don't need a more European Britain we need a more British Europe. That's so my answer on that. Now, the, um, as regards the cultural diversity, um, I think that the challenges to cultural diversity don't really come from the activities of national governments or unions and so on. They're, they're to do with much broader processes of globalization and, and um, uh, you know, the spread of certain you know, culture and music and all that kind of thing. So I don't, I don't think that the creation of such a union would actually damage the individual, the specific national cultures. Um, I, I don't think uh, that would necessarily be the case, and I think that there would be quite a lot of cultures, regional cultures, that might actually benefit, um, provided the emphasis was placed on political union rather than cultural homogenization. I think these are two totally separate things, can, can be kept apart. We've got very limited time, so if we could have the question from here and then the question from the gentleman from high above there, and I'm afraid that we'll have to finish there. Hi, my name's Tom. Um, I just feel that you do speak a lot of sense, but your heart's in the politics and economics, and you skip very quickly in this talk, certainly, over the military aspects, and in your example of the Anglophone world, it was very successful, but ushered in a vast and rapid and successful expansion of military power. And that is fine in many ways, but it might not be what many or all Europeans seek. And something like the Swiss model is perhaps what they're really after. So it is a risk, especially if one sets up a parliament which, proving unwieldy, unwieldy then allows a say a strong man to come in? Well, I, I think, starting with the Swiss, I mean, the Swiss, of course, are highly militarized. Um, you know, they still have weapons and, in, in the houses. Um, and so uh, I don't think 
If, if the Eurozone wished to go down the Swiss route, I would be perfectly happy. I mean, that would be a much higher degree of militarization than I, I would recommend. Um, and, and that is why I find the Swiss, I, I, I cited them earlier on as an exceptional case. I mean, they actually deterred the Nazis. I mean, Hitler did take a look, but he realized that they would fight. And they were capable of it. And they would retreat to the mountains. And it would be very difficult. Um, and so for me, yes, Switzerland is an example of a state. You know, it's got a common debt, a clear sense of political identity, um, a strong military profile, and, and it's not, being put, not going to be pushed around by anybody. Now, unfortunately, there are many countries in Europe who are completely unlike that. I mean, Ireland, for example, which has been a freeloader in military terms, um, you know, by virtue of the fact that it has the absolute prime geopolitical location between England or Great Britain and the United States um, it hasn't had to think very much about its security you know, if you live, if, you, if you're located between Germany and Russia, it's a different, different story, so my solution would actually put it up to the Irish and indeed other freeloaders on the military side that if you wish to participate in the common economic and other structures, you must also pull your weight in the military sphere and I'm convinced that actually that bullet would be, would be bitten in Ireland and elsewhere. That I don't, I mean, this new union couldn't be neutral. So any formerly neutral country that joined it would cease to be neutral. Well, the country would cease to exist, and its inhabitants would cease to be neutral. I'm sorry, we really, I have to stop you. I assured the gentleman there one more question, and we have to finish. But of course you can continue later. Go ahead, please. Okay. Um, <clears throat> well, at Charles Turner, University of Warwick, sociology. Um, as it's the last question, maybe I could ask you to maybe step back a bit. Um, it's, it's one thing to be a historian, and it's another to propose policy on the basis of history. Um, and when you were doing the history part, I think everyone was you know, hugely impressed with this panoramic history of Europe you presented. But when you came to your proposals for what should happen now, I think there was, there was a measure of scepticism um, in the room. Um, and I just wonder, I mean, couldn't you perhaps argue that one of the strengths, one of the things that's made the European Union post-world period relatively successful is that quite a lot of its, maybe the majority of its administrators and its politicians have actually spent their time behaving in quite a kind of technocratic, administrative, bureaucratic, managerial way. Um, and they haven't really shaped policy very strongly on the basis of historical arguments. Um, and by the same token, some of the biggest mischief, especially in the 20th century in Europe, has been done by people trying to make policy on the basis of um, his long-term historical arguments, um, the breakup of Yugoslavia being a case or not. Well, thank you. That's very, very thoughtful. And um, uh, yes, I think there is, there are dangers. Um, if my proposal are adopted, which is big, if nobody knows how it would would turn out. But I think what I'm arguing as an historian is that there's no need to reinvent the wheel and that um, the mistake that the, uh, the current European elite, the kind of technocrats and the managerial figures that you're, you're, you're talking about, the mistake they make is that they think 
that they um, have created something completely sui generis, completely new, a new way of doing European politics, um, which um, bypasses you know, the problematic early examples. And what I'm really trying to say is, actually, you haven't. You're much closer to the old Holy Roman Empire uh, uh, than is good for comfort. And moreover, um, uh, because you're uh, not aware um, of the strength of these al- this alternative model, you have actually, when I say you, I mean the, these elites, you've actually created, through uh, having a, a, a currency union without a political union, a Heath Robinson contraption, which is now falling apart around our ears. And so we are seeing the limitations, the very extreme limitations of that managerial approach. Um, so I think that that can be argued both ways. That, that would really be my response. We have to finish now. Um, I'd like to thank the audience. You've been a pleasure to listen to. And I've noticed that several of you uh, presented yourself as alumni, and then there were two people who pointed out or their affiliations were history um, discussion groups. And it's a great pleasure to have an audience that comes from that type of background. And certainly the discussion we had was focused but also challenging. And most of all, thank you very much to our speaker, Professor Bedvinson. Thank you.